0: We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, uh, rounding the corner toward the end of the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. That's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. A couple of years ago, a Christian author by the name of Tom Rayner did a survey on Twitter where he asked people to tell him some stories of disputes they had come across at church that were kind of begun in silly ways, silly disputes uh, that people argued about at their church. So I'm going to read you some of the responses he got, some uh, unusual and silly church disputes. One person said their church got into an argument over the appropriate length for the worship pastor's beard. Uh, Another said they got into an argument about whether the clock in the worship center should stay or should be removed. My guess is that had to do with the sermons and their length. Uh, One group argued over which picture of Jesus to hang up in the foyer. Uh, One group argued over should the worship pastor wear shoes during the service. A lot of controversy about what worship pastors wear and do. I just was like, who are these unshaven, shoeless worship pastors roaming the country. Uh, There was an argument because somebody accidentally bought cran grape juice for communion instead of regular grape juice, and so they wondered, is that good enough? Uh, What type of green beans should the church serve when they have meals together? Uh, And I think the answer to that is no green beans. Uh, I dislike them. Uh, Should we serve Folgers or Starbucks out in the foyer? Uh, I like this one. Should we allow deviled eggs at the potluck? And then the last one, should we call it a pot luck or a pot blessing because we don't believe in luck, right? So uh, these are ridiculous but real conflicts. I think one of the things that those conflicts highlight is that there are thousands of things to argue about. And I think it's fair to say anytime you have more than two people, really anytime you have more than one person in a room together, the possibility of conflict is there. And anytime more than one person is in a room for any length of time, conflict is almost inevitable. Those of you who are married, maybe some of you went into your marriage and you thought a really good marriage, we will never experience conflict. And you were disabused of that notion on your honeymoon. Because it only takes two people together for any period of time before conflict emerges. This is true in our families. This is true in the church. And so conflict is a normal part of the human existence because we are going to disagree about things. You may come in on Sunday and there's a song that I love and you hate it. You may come and you may sit in one spot, and I come and I say, that's my spot. You need to get out of my chair, right? So we have preferences that can result in disagreement, that can result in conflict. Conflict is almost inevitable unless you go and live by yourself in a cave. And as we look at the Scripture, though, what we see is that the presence of conflict itself is not the primary problem that we face in the church. In other words, conflict happens. The primary problems that we face emerge when we try to handle those conflicts in ways that don't honor Jesus. So in 90% of the cases of conflict that we, we face, uh, it is a lot more important how we handle the conflict than it is what the conflict is about. Right? The resolution process is normally a lot more important than the content of the conflict. Because if we handle the resolution process wrongly, right? If in the resolution process I begin to harden my heart against you and I say, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Or if in the resolution process I gather allies to my team against your team, We can end up with a very devastating and damaging situation in the body of Christ, right? So as you look at the New Testament in particular, you see a lot of instances of conflict and you see a lot of exhortations toward peace because the early Christians recognized that unresolved conflict could derail the mission of the church, They recognize if we can't get along over secondary matters, how are we going to unite together to share the gospel, right? Because Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he said, I want you guys to go into all the nations and you share the good news of Jesus Christ, right? But if you can't get along with each other, if you are arguing about the songs that we sing, or if you are arguing about your political tribe, or if you are arguing about where to sit or who gets what Sunday school classroom, you can't stay on mission, So the issue of conflict resolution is deeply important to the integrity of the church. So here in Philippians chapter 4, we're going to see one illustration of a conflict that emerged in the Philippian church in the first century. It was a conflict between two women. Their names were Euodia and Syntyche. And apparently the conflict had gotten to such a level that Paul felt compelled when he wrote his letter to Philippi to address them by name, to say, hey, Uodia and Syntyche, you you ladies need to get along because your conflict is threatening the unity of the body of Christ. So we're going to look this morning at what does it look like to pursue healthy conflict resolution as Christians? One of the things I love about this passage, as Paul exhorts these ladies, is, is I love to remember when I read it, Paul himself was no stranger to conflict. All right, so Paul is not coming to this subject as somebody who says, hey, I've never had a conflict, but you guys get along. In fact, there are, there are multiple conflicts we see in the New Testament in which Paul was involved, two of the bigger ones that I can think of. If you read the book of Galatians, you see that Paul had a dispute with the apostle Peter about who should eat with whom when Jews and Gentiles, who were Christians, ate together. He also had a dispute with Barnabas his fellow traveler, over whether or not they should bring John Mark on their missionary journey because John Mark had abandoned them previously. And it says these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, they began to fight and the disagreement got so sharp, they actually parted ways. They said, hey, look, we're not going to go on this missionary journey together. But later in his life, we see in 2 Timothy, Paul has at least reconciled, we know, with John Mark because he says, I want John Mark to come to me. All right, so Paul understands conflict And Paul understands resolution, and he understands its importance. And as we talk about the subject, the importance of conflict resolution is going to become clear. I want to show you a passage from the Gospels. When Jesus spoke about conflict resolution, look at what he said. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now I want you to think about that for a second because this is going to put conflict resolution, I think, in light of its importance for us. When Jesus talks about it, he says, if you come in essentially to worship— Right, You come in to the temple, or you come into the church, and you come in this morning and you say, you know what, there is somebody that I'm at odds with, that I have a, an unresolved conflict with. Jesus actually says, conflict resolution takes priority at that moment over corporate worship. Conflict resolution takes priority at that moment over corporate worship. In other words, if you have something against someone or they have something against you, and there's this lack of resolution, he would say, don't sing another song, don't listen to another sermon, don't serve in the nursery until you take the effort to try to resolve the conflict. It's that important. So we want to talk this morning about the reasons it's that important. And then how we can pursue conflict resolution. I'm aware that there are some in this room this morning. I mean, I know it for certain. Because in any group this size, there are some in the room this morning that there's somebody that comes to your mind that you say, you know what, there was a conflict. This person said something about me or to me and my feelings were hurt and I haven't spoken to them in who knows how long, a week, a month, a year you have an unresolved conflict. Some of you, your unresolved conflict is probably seated next to you this morning because it's your spouse. And so we're going to discuss why and how do we want to pursue conflict resolution in a way that honors Jesus Christ. That's what we'll look at this morning. So let's begin with the why. Why do we want to pursue reconciliation? I think that's a valid question, because conflict resolution is hard, right? So we're talking about something that's tough to do, so it's a good question to go, why should I even bother? I was talking with one of our younger staff this week, and I was telling him, hey, we're going to talk about this idea of conflict resolution this Sunday, and he said, man, that's so good that you're talking about it. He's in his 20s. He said, because my generation tends to be conflict avoidant. He said, we hate conflict. And I thought, man, I wonder if that's true. And so I went and did a little bit of online research this week about millennials, those who were born from 1982 to roughly 1999. They did a focus group of those in their 20s, early 30s about conflict resolution. And one of the things they found was that millennials said, you know, if I have a conflict, I would rather just shoot someone a text to try to deal with it instead of go talk to them face to face. Now, I'm not picking on millennials because I can remember at times as a kid being told by older generations, hey, if you've got a conflict, avoid all of that, you know, touchy-feely feeling stuff. Don't go try to talk it out. Just avoid them, right? Just, Just live somewhere they don't live. We all have that tendency to want to avoid. And yet as we look throughout the Scripture, we see repeated calls to pursue reconciliation, to pursue peace. Look at Romans chapter 12. Paul also wrote this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So far as it depends on you, pursue peace. Now, I recognize there may be instances where you cannot pursue peace. There may be instances where you've tried and the other person doesn't respond, right? So you say, it's impossible. I've done all I can do. There may be other instances where some sort of minor conflict has occurred and you're better off just letting it go, right? So your your path toward resolution might be, you know what, I'm just going to let this go. So you come in here this morning and somebody uh, is sitting in your chair or on the way to church, somebody cut you off on the highway and then you found out you pulled into the parking lot together. Those kinds of conflicts probably don't need to go to the elder board often we can just let him go. But there are other conflicts where the unity of the body of Christ might be threatened, right? Where where I can't seem to let it go, and they can't seem to let it go. And our relationship is threatened, and the unity of the church is threatened, and our ability to come together to fulfill the Great Commission is threatened. That's the kind of conflict we're dealing with in Philippians chapter 4. A conflict that requires us to move forward, to attempt to reconcile. And there are two reasons from this passage, I think, why we're called to pursue reconciliation. The first one is this, because unresolved conflict threatens our unity in Christ. Look at verse 2. Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. He says, I want you guys to live in unity, to think the same thing, to be of the same mind, very literally. This is, um, this is actually the same phrasing that Paul used in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, where he says, I want you to think in, of the same mind, be of the same mind, the same spirit, get together. He says, and I want you guys to be of the same mind, get along. Right, Because here's what has happened. This conflict has arisen and it it has gotten to the level where now Paul has to call them out publicly. And I think that's because the conflict was beginning to spread. And so there was Team Euodia and there was Team Syntyche. Right And so Paul says, "In order to avoid splitting the church down the middle, you two ladies, you need to get along so that the rest of the church can get along. If not, what's going to happen? There's going to be a division in the people of Jesus Christ. And remember, one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ, as you read the New Testament, is that it's a group of people who are different, who are united under Jesus, male and female, slave and free. Jew and Gentile, people who think different things, who look differently, who are united under the banner of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, Euodia and Syntyche, you are threatening that unity with your conflict. There There are certain conflicts that we could engage in that would split this church down the middle. If we were to stand up and take positions on certain cultural or political issues, or if I were to stand up and, and take a real hard position on, we do this song and not this song, and, and we sing this way, and you're allowed to raise your hands, you're not allowed to raise your hands, there are certain things that we could Draw a line in the sand that would be of secondary importance that could split the church. Right Now remember, there are things that are of primary importance. We talked about them earlier when we recited the Apostles' Creed. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Salvation by grace through faith alone. The Trinity, the deity of Christ. Right There are things we draw a line in the sand on. There are other things that we say, okay, these are in this outer circle. And most of the stuff that we argue about is in this outer circle of secondary importance. A few years ago, my wife and I had a discussion one evening about whether it was appropriate to make chili with beans or not. And we began to discuss, I won't tell you who was on what side, because I don't want to incriminate either one of us, but with her permission, I put that discussion out on Facebook. I said, Facebook friends, tell me, does chili, uh, does the beans belong in chili or not? I had more discussion on that question than anything else I've ever posted. And people felt strongly about it. And so the no bean people were like, once you add beans, it's no longer chili. It's something, but it's not chili. And once you add beans, you might as well move to Canada, right? Just get out of this state. And then other people said, no, beans are great, right? They fill it out. They allow you to stretch your budget. They provide some additional flavors. And people argued their case passionately. And maybe this morning I could split the room down the middle by taking a position on that. And I might believe my position and I might care about it deeply. But you know what? It would be a terrible distraction, from what we're trying to do. All right, and that's a silly one. But there are so many matters about which we argue that become a distraction and a threat to our unity. So Paul says, Uodia and Syntiki live in harmony in the Lord. Because unresolved conflict threatens our unity. Secondly, unresolved conflict threatens our mission. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, verse 1, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way do what? Stand firm in the Lord. And then down in verse 3, he says, True companion, I want you to help these women. They've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Down at the end of verse 3, their names are in the book of life. Here's what Paul is getting at. That as a church, we have been called to partner together to share the gospel with all nations. That's our goal. That's our mission. He says, and I want you to stand firm in the Lord. Focus on the center. The center is the reality that we are a community of people gathered around the, the, the reality that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he offers eternal life to all who believe in him. And our mission is to proclaim that. If you get sidetracked with other arguments, you get off mission. My son for the last three years has played basketball on a team here in town. And every year the, the kids get better and better. They, they learn skills better. They learn how to shoot. They learn all of the, the things they need to learn. But the very first year, The first few games especially, one of the key lessons that the coaches and parents had to drill into the kids was this one. Don't steal the ball from your own teammates. I mean, the the ball, everybody wants to be the guy with the ball, right? When you're playing basketball, everybody wants to be that guy. But you got to learn, you can't take it from your own teammates. And it's tempting, right? Because one of your teammates has the ball and you might think, This is an opportunity. He won't even expect me to come and take the ball. And so you grab it. We go, no, no, don't take it from him. You only steal the ball from the other team, right? Because if you guys start stealing the ball from each other, you're not going to accomplish your purpose, which is to win the game. The other team is your opposition, not one another. All right, so here's what... Paul is getting at by urging Euodia and Syntyche to get along to stand firm in the Lord. He says, if you begin to argue about matters of secondary importance, you lose your focus on your mission. You're stealing the ball from your teammates rather than playing the game together. This is one reason why reconciliation is important. Years ago, my wife and I attended a church, not in this community, not in College Station, but it was a church in a strategic location. A lot of college students nearby, a lot of families nearby who needed to hear the gospel. But the deeper we got connected in this church, the more we found that there were arguments amongst the members that had festered for for sometimes years. They were arguing about uh, space, which Sunday school got to meet where? They were in the middle of worship wars, right? How many hymns should we do? How many choruses should we do? How loud should it be? They were arguing about things like who got to speak more at the annual chili cook-off, right, a deeply strategic event. As a result of turning inward and fighting one another, the church was slowly dying. And there were tens of thousands of people within about a two-mile radius who needed to know Jesus. Paul says, be in harmony in the Lord. Because when we can't reconcile, we get off mission. So that's why. So then the question for us becomes how? How? If this is the why, how do we pursue reconciliation? I want to provide four principles for us this morning of the how to pursue reconciliation. If you find yourself at odds with somebody in the body of Christ, how do you move forward? First principle is this, be humble, be humble. Over and over again throughout the book of Philippians, there are these exhortations toward unity and humility. The most powerful one, of course, is Philippians chapter 2. Where Paul says, you need to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Remember, we talked about this. He went from the highest possible place to the lowest possible place for the sake of our salvation. Jesus didn't deserve to die, but he chose to die for us. And then he rose again, and what did he do? He extended forgiveness even to those who were complicit in putting him to death. So Paul says, I want you to follow that example of humility when you approach other people. One thing you might have missed here in Philippians 4, verse 2, if you were reading quickly. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Here's what I want you to notice. He repeats that verb twice. I plead with you, Euodia. I plead with you, Syntyche. Now that's not a normal thing to do usually in the Greek language. Normally you would have one verb in the sentence and that verb would kind of work its way through the entire passage. In other words, this one verb would control everything that follows. So to repeat the verb twice is a unique way for Paul to add emphasis and also to say this, Euodia, I'm urging you to get along with Syndigi. Syndagy, I'm urging you to get along with Euodia. What's the point? Both of you ladies need to take a step forward and initiate resolution of the conflict. It's not on one of you. It's not on the other of you. It's on both of you. Yodia, you think you're right. Syntyche, you think you're right. I want you to initiate reconciliation because the responsibility falls on both of you. Even if you think you are 90% right and the other person is 90% wrong initiate reconciliation. Now, I want to to add one caveat. I realize that there are certain situations in which an individual might be uh, truly abusive. And in some of those situations, it may be that that you need to have some separation from a person where reconciliation is, is not a possibility at the moment. Right, But most of the conflicts that we're involved in, 90 to 95% of them, that's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is somebody slighted me. right? Somebody had a party and didn't invite me. Somebody said something about me to a friend. Somebody said something to me that I didn't like, that hurt my feelings, in some way offended my honor. And Paul says those are those situations in which we need all of us to move forward with humility, to pursue reconciliation. So he says, I urge you, Odea, I urge Syntyche to get along. It may be that we have to actually overlook a transgression. Look at Proverbs 19, 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Sometimes we might have to agree to disagree. And sometimes we might have to let it go. So first of all, we seek to be humble. Secondly, be discreet. Be discreet. As I mentioned before, I think that one of the reasons this conflict between these two ladies had gotten to the place where Paul had to write it down was because they had apparently begun to recruit allies, right? So you have Team Euodia and Team Syndicate. And I think had they not gone and made a big deal out of this conflict, it wouldn't have spread. I mean, obviously it's spread to the point where Paul says, when I write it down in my letter, everybody's going to go, oh yeah, Euodia and Syntyche, we know what's going on there, right? We don't know what's going on. They knew what was going on because Euodia and Syntyche had apparently talked about it and talked about it and talked about it and it had drawn other people in. And so what had happened was the gossip of the situation had exacerbated the conflict. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. See, here's the problem. Once the gossip has spread, it's almost impossible for the conflict ever to truly be resolved like it should. I was reminded this week as I thought about this passage of an illustration. Uh, We have a table at my house uh, that we bought, I don't know, earlier this year sometime, six or eight months ago. It's, it's got a little wooden top on it. And then on the bottom are three little spindly metal legs, very thin spindly metal legs. So it's not the most stable table you could possibly have. So the very first day that I set this table up, one of our kids was walking or running through the house and knocked it over. And when they knocked it over, uh, it chipped. Uh, But a bunch of the wood on the side chipped off into two or three pieces. So we kind of had a big chip in the side of the table. So I went, I got some glue. I glued it back together. It looked okay. The first time I glued it back together, it looked all right. You couldn't really tell. I set it back up. Next day, they knocked it over again. Second time, more of it chipped off. Three or four chips. I kind of glued it back together. It didn't look quite as good the second time. But we were like, okay, third, fourth, fifth time. I kept gluing it back together. By about the sixth time it happened, I finally said, you know what? I give up, right? And so I just took the pieces and I stacked them on top of the table and said, it'll function okay this way. It's no longer aesthetically appealing. Now, of course, the great irony is since a couple of months ago when I gave up, nobody has knocked it over. why do I share that? Here's why. Because some damage, you can try to patch it up, but it's never going to be the same. And once gossip spreads into a community as a result of a conflict, you can try to patch it up, but it's never going to be the same once I've spread it. I want you to imagine for a moment, let me just give you a very concrete example of this. This is fictional, but just imagine for just a minute that this morning I came in and Kenny and I got into a conflict. I said, Kenny, your beard's getting too long. People are complaining. And he says, I don't care. I'm gonna grow it out. It's gonna be four feet long by February. You watch me, okay? And I say, no, man. And, and Kenny gives me a shove, and I give Kenny a shove, and we go on with the morning, but we're angry. And then I go home, and I tell my wife, hey, you won't believe what Kenny did, and you, don't, you won't believe what Kenny said. I'm so angry at Kenny, I can't stand him. I hate his beard, I hate everything he's trying to turn this place into, right? And I just vent and vent. But then I wake up the next morning and I'm convicted that I need to pursue reconciliation. So I come and I apologize to Kenny. And Kenny apologizes to me. He shaves his beard, we hug it out and we're good. And he and I have reconciliation. But what about the person I brought into the conflict who wasn't there? How does that person, how does my wife find reconciliation when she wasn't a part of the conflict? So now she has anger and frustration toward him that she has to deal with. Right, you see how gossip can damage our relationships further. And so we're humble when we seek reconciliation, but secondly, keep our mouths closed unless it's talking to the, to the person or talking to those who can legitimately help us solve the issue. Be humble, be discreet. Thirdly, if necessary, get help. Getting help is very different from gossiping. When I say get help, it may be that you reach an impasse in some sort of conflict. And you say the only way to break this impasse is we need to get a third-party perspective. We need to get somebody who can come in. In Philippians 4, verse 3, Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle. Now, we don't know who that true companion was, but Paul says, Look, buddy, I need your help, right? They're not getting along. They need a third party to come in and help them. Right? If you are married and you have a conflict with your spouse where you feel stuck, This is why there are marriage counselors, right? What's the value of a marriage counselor? The value of a marriage counselor is they are a third party who is theoretically unbiased, who can come in and listen to you and say, okay, how can I help both of you move toward reconciliation? That's the value. Right? Maybe it is you need to seek help from a pastor, maybe from one of the elders, maybe from a wise friend. You go find somebody. You say, my goal in this is not to gossip. My goal in this is not to get you on my side, but my goal is we need help because we're stuck. I feel anger. He or she feels anger. And we need assistance. Jesus actually laid out a process for uh, for conflict resolution in the book of Matthew verses 18. And I want, I want to, us to follow this process for just a moment. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother, right? So first thing is somebody sins against you, you go talk to him. You say, what you said, what you did, it hurt my feelings. It makes me angry. You go talk to him. If he does not listen to you, then you take one or two more with you, right? So you grab a friend or two and you go and you say, hey, let's try to resolve this together. If he refuses to listen to them, that is, they they say, look, I've done nothing wrong. I don't need to change. I don't need to pursue reconciliation at all. Then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right, in other words, there may come a moment where the church itself has to discipline those who will not engage appropriately in conflict resolution, right? This can happen in a marriage situation. It could also happen just in a situation where somebody is being particularly divisive and won't listen. But notice before that, Jesus says, look, you go and talk to the person one-on-one and then you bring a friend or two and you go through that process of getting help if you need help. It may be you're the person who's asked to help and you can step in and discreetly help two people to resolve a conflict that otherwise could spin out of control. So we seek humility and discretion, and if necessary, we seek help. Earlier this week, I also was reminded of an incident that happened uh, when my son was small, you know, probably a toddler, 18 months, two years old. And and those of you who have toddlers, you know that uh, often when they speak, it can be difficult to understand what they're trying to communicate. And so uh, this one particular afternoon uh samuel was trying to say something to me but i didn't understand him i couldn't understand what he was saying he was asking clearly asking me to do something for him but i didn't get it so he would say and i'd say hey buddy i can't i'm trying and i would guess at what he was trying to say and he'd go no and he'd say it again and i would guess wrong again and he goes, No. And after about round four or five of this, he began to get red in the face and he was angry and his fists are up like this and there are tears coming in his eyes and he's shouting it at me. And I'm like, I don't get it, right? So we're faced off in the living room and there's this conflict between us. And then our oldest daughter, Elizabeth, walks in and goes, Daddy, he, he's asking you to read him a story about Thomas the Train. And Samuel goes, Yes, that's it, right? Calms down. We needed a mediator. We needed help to get unstuck. That's really all that a good helper, a good counselor, a good third party does is they help us get unstuck. They help us understand the other person's position and help us move toward forgiveness. So we seek humility, discretion, get help if necessary, and then fourthly, we forgive. We forgive. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, I want to talk for a moment about this word forgiveness, because I think it can be confusing. When we talk about forgiveness, sometimes we think, well, does forgiveness mean that I just kind of let anything happen and I never deal with anything anybody does wrong against me? Okay, that's not what forgiveness means. Okay, forgiveness does not mean that we never are able to pursue justice, right? Forgiveness does, certainly does not mean that we allow a person to continue to abuse over and over and over again. Forgiveness does not even necessarily always mean that the relationship will be fully restored. Here's what forgiveness is. Actually, the original word from the, from the original Greek language to forgive has the idea of I let it go, right? So, so it, it, I let it go in the sense that I say, I am no longer going to hold anything against your account, I'm not going to expect you to pay me back. I'm not going to expect anything else personally from you toward me. I will let it go. Now, again, there may be situations where there are consequences beyond your control, right? For severe offenses, Uh, the, the court system might get involved. The church might get involved. It doesn't mean there's no justice. It does mean that on a personal level between me and the Lord and me and you, I say, I release this transgression. I release you to the Lord's discipline and judgment rather than trying to find a way to enact it myself. Forgiveness is something that we practice in imitation of Jesus Christ, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Jesus died for our transgressions against God, against him and then extended forgiveness and reconciliation to us. And so the Scripture says, in imitation of Jesus Christ, we extend forgiveness and reconciliation to others. And this is difficult to do. It requires the work of the Spirit. Many years ago, eight or ten years ago, we had some friends in another context That due to a conflict that they had with Shannon and me, did one of the things that we talked about this morning. They took that conflict to other people. And began to talk to others and, and it began to spread. And so now there were other people that had a perspective about us that we felt was inaccurate. They felt they were justified because of things that I had said and done toward them, right? So they took that conflict over here and the conflict began to grow. And I got angry and they got angry and there was tension and separation in this relationship, right? So, so after a few months of this, we managed to sit down at a table together. All of us believers in Jesus Christ, right, they apologized and and I apologized for my part in it and we began to move forward. But here was what was interesting was uh, I said, I forgive you, but I would still sometimes wake up in the morning feeling very unforgiving. I still would find myself sometimes imagining scenarios in which they could be paid back for what they had done. And so forgiveness, I found, became a multi-year process in my life. It wasn't once. It wasn't twice. It had to keep working its way through my heart. But the degree to which we are able to forgive and reconcile is the degree to which we reflect the forgiveness and kindness and grace of God in Jesus Christ. So as far as it is possible with you, You seek peace and reconciliation. So let me ask a couple of questions then as we close. First one is this. Do you have a relationship right now that you're aware of that requires reconciliation? There may be a relationship you're thinking of as I'm talking this morning that you say, I know there's a phone call I shouldn't make. I would challenge you, make it today. It may be somebody in this room. I would challenge you, talk to them today. Or somebody else in town? And you say, well, they've never apologized to me. Here's what I see from the Scripture is we initiate, we seek reconciliation as far as it is possible with us. And once we are confident, we say, you know what? I have followed the Scripture as closely as I can. I've done all that I can do. Then we release them to the discipline and judgment of God. And we say, in good conscience, I can move forward even if there's not full reconciliation. I've tried. Is there a relationship that requires reconciliation in your life? And will you take the initiative to pursue reconciliation for the sake of Jesus Christ? Will you make that call? Will you go over to that person's house and talk with them for the sake of the unity of the body of Jesus Christ and the mission we've been called to? Let's pray, and then we'll close in worship. Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for your word. Lord, we pray that our hearts and minds would move toward reconciliation with those that we have wronged and who have wronged us. Father, I pray that we would remember the good news that you extended reconciliation to us in Jesus Christ, and we would extend it to others as well. I pray protect us from disunity and strife. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.